Hello, and welcome to Research Software Engineering Stories. This episode of RSE Stories is brought to you from the UK and Europe, in collaboration with RSE UK. My name is Peter Schmidt, I'm a Research Software Engineer at the University College of London, and I will be your host for this episode. My guest today is Richard Fitzjohn. Richard is a Research Software Engineer at the Department of Infectious Disease Epidemiology at the Imperial College in London. Imperial College has been one of the leading universities to conduct research on the new coronavirus and COVID-19 outbreak, as well as advising the national government on strategy. And therefore, I'm very excited to have Richard here with us today. Richard, it's great to have you here and welcome to the show. Before we start talking about your current work, why don't you give us a bit of your background and what your journey was to become a research software engineer? I've been working as a as a researcher as a software engineer since since the early 2000 um when I finished my my masters I was working in New Zealand for a environmental research company called Banker Research uh, before going to do a PhD in in theoretical evolution in University of British Columbia and while I was there I mostly was focused on on writing writing software that implemented new methods that I was developing and so that software component of my work sort of became more and more of of what I was doing um, I did a, a postdoc for three years in Australia, where we worked in a um, interdisciplinary collaboration with, uh, with with geologists and with physicists, but also with software engineers and machine learners, trying to trying to sort of find common ground across these different different disciplines. Finishing that, I was really looking for um, for a role where I could where I could just do software engineering within a research context full time, which is which is where I find myself now. How did you get to work on epidemiology at Imperial, Richard? It was just good timing, really. As, as we were looking to, to leave Australia, this, this opportunity came up. What is now the MRC Center for Global Infectious Disease Analysis was looking for a couple of software engineers to, to sit within within this department, which is composed of a couple of hundred computational epidemiologists, to try and strengthen the the, the software that sits behind their work. And uh, it just seemed like a like a perfect fit. And I've, I've been there ever since. I started there in, in 2015. Can you describe the kinds of projects you're working on there and how this helps researchers in in, in epidemiology. And in, in the department, I, I run a group of software engineers, there's six of us, and we work on projects that really span the, the whole department. One of the, there's some larger projects like the Vaccine Impact Modeling Consortium there, where we provide infrastructure, web applications, ways of, of synthesizing data across multiple modeling groups to so do responsive work for, for outbreaks. And we try and build general tools that that support the research. Yeah, a combination of, of, new, of new web interfaces to, to research software, workflows and infrastructure, or new building blocks that, that sit behind the research software. And our, our general aim is to try and get researchers to write a bit less code per unit of science that they're doing, trying to stop them having to, having to invent it all themselves. You mentioned modeling, and uh, neither you nor I are epidemiologists, but uh, for the benefit of those not familiar with the subject at all, what exactly is an epidemiological model and why do you think it's so important that we have one? Epidemiological models are not really any different to any other model in science. They're just a, a way of taking some intractable system and replacing it with a with one that's more tractable, more amenable to to, to investi- investigation. Um, those most models might be might be super detailed, really sort of individual based, very mechanistic models of of the world through to statistical descriptions. The the models will probably have have roots in epidemiological insights, things that have worked well in, in previous epidemiological investigations and they may or may not be be fitted to data there isn't really there's not one epidemiological model ever involved there's a whole bunch of a whole bunch of different competing models that that can that modelers can use to 
to investigate different parts of these of, of these processes. The impression I get from talking to the epidemiologist is that a very frustrating uh, thing to try and try and work with because you're working with so many quantities that are partially observed or censored or imperfectly known, and so much of the modelling is around trying to trying to work out what data you know, what the real um, figure is that sits behind the piece of data you actually have with you. The understanding really is that we use these models to forecast how a disease or an infectious disease might progress. Would that yeah, be that's, the correct that's, that's certainly been one of the one of the main uses of, of, of models as forecasting, but it also has been useful for sort of now casting what, what situation are we in now or, or even looking back at the past and saying, OK, what, what can we given if, given this was the, the course of, of, of the of the epidemic? Um, what were the underlying parameters and then using using that to build our, our knowledge of the diseases? Could you describe what diseases you actually help develop the software for with the epidemiologists? So I, I work with with researchers right across the department, and we've we've been involved in models of, of at least uh, HIV/AIDS, malaria, dengue, Zika, influenza. Um, also, less known things and um, neglected tropical diseases, things like loa loa, which is a parasite that lives in in eyeballs. Um, so I've, I've worked with researchers who work on all of those models. But from my point of view, most of the time, I'm just black boxing the the underlying work and trying to find the trying to find a common engineering problems that sit behind the models so people are developing a dynamical model system something like differential equations how do we how do we make those models match as closely as possible the the equations that the, that the researchers are naturally thinking in rather than having to get them to to write out all of the procedural work while we're in the middle of this coronavirus pandemic i understand that your team and you are currently involved with a project on coronavirus and covid19 could you describe how this came about and what the nature of this project is yeah, absolutely. So since since the beginning of the year, the department has become even more sort of drawn into to coronavirus work as as it, as it started dominating. So the the earliest bits of work on that in the department go back to about um, January when things really started seeming like they were kicking off. The work that I'm personally involved with in in the in the coronavirus response has been setting up pipelines for for, for this sort of very unglamorous work of of data cleaning and um, amalgamations. We have data coming in, of course, from, from all sorts of different sources that need to be got into a common format so that the uh, so that the researchers can work with it. And then I've been working with two groups who are developing stochastic compartmental models. These are these sort of susceptible, infected, resistant type of, of models in, in different contexts. So one of them is a model of, of COVID-19 through the through the UK hospital system. Patients sort of get infected and move into, move into the hospitals. Maybe they go to ICU um, and track, tracking them through that, uh, tracking serology as, as we've got that data and trying to fit that to the, to the UK epidemic. And also working with a group who are developing similar models for low and middle income countries with perhaps less capacity to boost uh, the capacity within their healthcare systems. We've been developing similar stochastic models there and then, and then also trying with those ones to try and deploy them onto onto the web so that the public health agencies can, can directly interact. With One question that I have actually that came out of this conversation so far was that you're trying to search for commonalities in the code between the different models. Um, how would you approach that and have you actually found them? Um, yeah, there's, there's there's awful lots of there's, there's a lot of, of commonality. The, the, unfortunately, there's there's really no way of finding or not. The only way of really finding these common the common problems is to talk to people. So a lot of my job has just been to, to talk with researchers, find out what what problems they're having, what's slowing down their work, and then as soon as I find out that multiple people have have similar problems, trying to write some sort of base tool that sits beneath both pieces of modeling and then help work with the researchers to port their stuff onto this new tool. So we've, we've done that specifically for the case of dynamical modeling with a system we wrote uh, called ODIN, which is a, a domain-specific language with differential equations. It compiles 
a language that looks very high level, it looks like the maths to C or to JavaScript. But also a lot of it is is uh, just dealing with scientific workflows, versioning data that's coming in, versioning research outputs that come out, so that afterwards you can you can look back and say, well, I think I know this is this is the uh, this is the code that created this figure, and this, these are the changes that happen between between this figure I'm looking at and that figure I'm looking at. Some listeners will know that Imperial College played quite an important role in developing COVID nineteen models and have provided advice for the national response to the coronavirus outbreak. You and I know that, and, and a lot of other people, that our model was recently recently made available as open source on GitHub. How does this model fit in with the work that you and your team are doing? So this model is, that you're talking about is Neil Ferguson's COVIDSIM model, which is an individual-based model of COVID-19. So on the spectrum of mechanistic to statistical model. Uh, and this is one of this is one of the big models developed in the, in the department uh, and, and on GitHub. Although all of our stuff is has been available on on GitHub, so a lot of it's before Neil's um, Neil's model got got uh, got open source. I've not personally had any involvement with with CodeNet model, but Wes, who, who sits in my group, has been involved with that, organising the, the runs of of the model over 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 data, and then helping with Microsoft and GitHub as they as they work to refactor the model. There's been some controversy around the published open source GitHub model, Richard, and some of which sadly found its way into a major UK news outlet. The criticism focused on the quality of the code, or a lot of the criticism actually did, and mentioned best practices that should be followed. What's your response to that? My response to that is is I can I can see where people have come from. The code looks completely unlike how you, how you'd expect modern modern code to look. But I mean, a lot of that comes from the fact that it's 15 year old, or the, it, it started off 15 years ago, uh, and it's primarily been the, the product of one person. I think a lot of it comes from because we're so used to a software engineer seeing code that's structured in a particular way with with unit tests. We assume that anything that's that doesn't look like that can't possibly be right, uh, and it's 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 sort of like this. This whole thing with, uh, with, with bumblebees flying, people go around saying, oh, bumblebees can't fly because the models suggested that they, that they couldn't, but in actual fact, clearly they can. One of the things I've noticed with, with working with researchers is that sometimes the least probable looking code just runs fine because it's, because while there's no automated testing there, there's a lot of testing based on their, on their deep insight and their, their intuitions about the problem. And this is one thing that I think is hard to understand. These, you view these sorts of code bases with the eyes of a software engineer, but, but what you don't see is that they're a domain expert who is writing software. It's not, they're not engineering things. For me, the controversy also raised an interesting question about the use of best practices in research software engineering in general. I mean, something that you already touched on. So what, if anything, do you think is different between research and industrial commercial software and the best practices that we should follow? And should we even be thinking in those terms? I think that there's definitely a lot to be gained from, from thinking in these terms and also from working out where the limits of these, of these terms fall. I think people understand a bit how researchers use code for, for a lot of researchers. It's, it's a, it's a thinking tool. It's like any other analysis. If I, if I add or remove this, what happens? And this sort of code is never designed to be something that, that lives for a long time or that forms the basis of something, of something larger. It's, it's an experiment. It's like a, a maths notebook, right? Um, whereas in, in contrast, in industry, so much code exists to fill an identified gap. Someone's gone away and said, "Aha! Here's here's the missing thing we need. Here's a, here's a gap in the market. You go away and you do you do some design. You write to a spec. You can start writing tests before you even start writing code because it's very clear what it is you're going to develop. But with a if you're if you're trying to explore some complex dynamical system, you don't know where your model is going to lead you until you start until you start pushing it there. And so there's a, there's a very different pattern of development behind a lot of the very sciencey end of research software. So at the same time, there's a lot of uh, there's a lot of research code that does look a lot like industry software. And for that, 
sort of work. I think absolutely getting people involved with thinking as the industry does in, in terms of best practices, things like if you're writing and you go back to a different differential equation solver, that should that should come with a whole test suite, a, a well-documented interface that can people can start plugging their work directly into because that is going to be foundational. And I think one of the big problems that research software has is that things tend to grow from one end of that spectrum to the other. Well, they, they start off life as a as an exp as a computational experiment and they end up accidentally incorporating lots of stuff that actually should be infrastructure code and no one sits with the researchers and helps them try to unpick that um, so that they can end up with solid building blocks out of that, that they can build on later the point that you made earlier that in research we may be faced with faster moving goalposts because we don't know where the research is necessarily going right from the onset whereas with product management if you're as you say, fill a gap for a market with a particular product, you may have a clearer idea of what it is you're aiming for. Would that be a good reflection of what you what you yeah, uh, explained? Absolutely. I mean, I, I see so much, so much discarded research as people as people sort of are experimenting or are thinking around, and that's that creative process is, is kind of hard to understand if you haven't seen it. One aspect that I would like to drill down in a little bit more detail was to go into some of the best practices, and you mentioned them already, which is testing, stochastic and uh, mechanistic models in epidemiology. So how would you be able to actually apply testing and testing strategies to these kind of models that you and your team have been working on? Right, so, so within within our software development group, we're we're all huge fans of testing. All our stuff is written in a sort of a, a test-driven development approach typically things will, will have ex extremely high or complete code coverage right from the outset um, but that's partly because we're writing infrastructure code to fill a gap it sort of it, it maps pretty well in there um stochasticity so for a, so a stochastic model just turns out to be really depressingly hard to test and we've periodically done some some, some research to try and work out what best practice is in this space and haven't haven't found a lot it's something we've used as an interview question as well to try and find out how new developers might try and from from industry might try and test stochastic code and and almost always that sort of gets like this could gets punted on within the research that i'm involved with as we've got these stochastic models we try and use a couple of different directions to test the stochastic model one of them is just to simply use regression tests and then instead of inputs for instance of outputs and a given seed so every stochastic model that uses pseudo-random numbers is also deterministic it's just deterministic in a very fragile way you change almost anything about the model and then and then you'll get a different output, even though it might conform to the same distribution. The other thing that we, we've used a lot of is to try and find special cases where a model collapses into into another model. So if you turn off transmission, if you, if you turn off uh, immunity, if you if you if you, if you disable or, or take part certain parameters to to limit, the model should collapse onto other models, and you can you can prove that, that that's happening. You can you can do things like prove that you're not gaining individuals in a closed system. And all of these sorts of tests end up being driven very much by the by the epidemiological insights. I as a software developer can't write them, but I can work with the epidemiologist to try and write them, and that's been a really uh, rewarding experience in the last couple of months as as the researchers who I'm working with are learning how to combine the best out of out of a, um, best practices in, in, in software development, but also with, with their epidemiological insight. I think what a question that I came to my mind just now was that how often actually are you in a position where you can write tests right from the beginning and how often actually is it that you have to retrofit tests into the code that you've been given? And for the for the code that I write, we write tests right from the beginning all the time because because it's infrastructural code. 
Um, and we're, find, we're finding more strategies for doing that with, with research code, but typically there is a prototyping phase. But what I've been trying to encourage the researchers to do is to think of that as first draft. And then as soon as we've got something that we like, try and get some tests on it that capture what it is that they like and work with to say, okay, you just looked at that graph and said, yep, that's doing the right thing. How do we try and formalize that? The earlier you get the testing in, the better. It's very difficult to retrofit a suite of tests to an existing code base. And I think one of the reasons for that is just knowing that you're going to have that tool shapes the hand in a way that that's, that this makes adding adding tests to a couple of thousand lines of monolithic code almost impossible in any satisfactory way. Moving on to another best practice, which is uh, using code repositories uh, such as GitHub or Git. Publishing code as open source, however, is an extra step. What do you think is your advice uh, for research teams on when and even if to go public with their code? The, the answer to that question is driven as much by sort of current values and incentives as anything else. It feels a lot like the open data debates and um, a while ago where if, if funders and, and journals start mandating these things, it just happens. As a, as a developer and for the sort of infrastructure code we write and for any of the researchers that we're working with who are developing new methodological tools, the tendency has been just to release things as open source right from the beginning. So there isn't an extra step. And, and it's sort of, in a lot of ways, the laziest and easiest thing to do, right? You just you just put the code out and then there's no like, oh, is this, is this ready to release? Adding that as soon as there's an extra step there, that becomes a hurdle you have to cross. And then and people, it's easy to say, oh, yeah, what what do we have to get ready for for that for that release? But I think there's a lot, to, there's a lot of value in the sort of continuous integration, continuous deployment, continuous release frame of mind where just publishing things out all the time is, is the easiest thing to do. Um, if, but if you're a scientist and you're working on a piece of work and you're concerned that someone else might be working on the same piece of work, then there's, there's a tension there where you, you might not want to release that code until until your paper is, is out. And I think I, I sympathize a lot with scientists have, uh, working like that. The code is really a byproduct of their work. It's a, it's a reference implementation at best. It's not maybe designed to be used by anyone. And for those people, I think a release at the point of publication is the best we could, we could ask for. But even when working with those people, I think anyone working in software can just start the conversation with those researchers early about what license will it eventually be under and do you have a pathway to release so that it doesn't just happen at the end as some last minute drama and as something that there is a plan for at the beginning and it becomes just a case of flipping a switch. I think that's an interesting aspect that you just mentioned there. So there are two elements to it. One is to look at open source as a reusable code for other research projects, like for instance, you know, the code that you mentioned in your work where you try to make that as open source available as soon as soon as it becomes available as you develop it and then there is the scientific aspect where you may not make it available until the research actually has come to a conclusion and you tested your hypotheses and can be verified which brings us to an interesting question that i want to briefly touch on which is um, how can we verify publications and scientific results in future and how open source may help us with that. I think this, is, this has been a, a big debate for, for a long time. I used to be um, a applications editor for methods and ecology and evolution, partly to try and help with this problem of, of reviewing software. I've also worked with an organization called R-OpenSci, where we've um, developed the process of open software review. It's it's very difficult as part of the peer review process. It's already regarded as, as being highly overburdened and a, and a 
of a drain on a lot of scientists' time to add into their, their whole process of verifying the reproducibility of results. I, I think it would be the sort of thing that would be excellent to have, but it, it really does does ask like where the where will the resources for doing that where will the, the supercomputer time for running someone's computational experiment that took 200 cpu years to run where where will the, the people who can who can look through a, a, a code base that was never really written to be particularly decipherable and say yep this is definitely doing the right thing there's a, there's a lot of there's a lot of questions to to unpick for, for doing that but on, at a personal level i i, I love it when, when researchers take the effort to, to try and just make a best face effort to make their work reproducible and i think Given how rare it is, it's important that those that those researchers are encouraged um, rather than piled in on. Another question around best practices and best industry practices, and, and you mentioned that briefly earlier on, was continuous integration and continuous development. I mean, how much of that is actually your team doing at that? And what do you see the challenges are with continuous integration and continuous deployment? The two big challenges for, for getting this working in a research environment, the first of them is just getting people aware that these types of things exist. Um, people often have an inkling that they do, but without researchers aren't reading tech blogs or maybe not in contact with people who can who can point them in the right direction. And so much of what counts as best practice is just it's just not known. And so groups like Software Carpentry who've been bringing that into scientists' knowledge is hugely valuable. But just just communicating with researchers about what they can do. The other the other big challenge is is people I think underestimate the difficulty of getting a piece of research software with all its odd dependencies working on another computer. And the first step of continuous integration is always getting that working in the so that the earlier you start at the better but for practically for most tools available to research that also requires that the work is in the open and this is one of the reasons why why we work in the open within, within our software development group is it just simplifies that whole process so if you're a researcher and you're working on a piece of code that's currently private then the options available to you to start with continuous integration aren't very aren't very good the, the costs for getting it for getting that started at the end of the project and the benefit, the costs are very high and the benefits are relatively low. So I think that pair of, of problems is knowing that it's there and then the um, being able to get it up and running is a trick. We're exploring a couple of on-premises continuous integration solutions to try and help researchers with with balancing the second of those. Um, and we certainly work with those who are developing open source tools to try and get them working with continuous integration from the get-go. And typically people really like it. Moving away from best practice a little bit and going, uh, we are reaching almost the end of the podcast now, talking a little bit about uh, research software engineering in general. I mean, the role of an RSE is actually relatively new and some may see it more on the side of research and embedded with researchers. And others may wish to see it a little bit more on the side of pure software development and promote better development practices. Where does your team sit in this and how would you like the role develop in future? Research software engineers is a very, it's a very broad church term and it, it spans everything from a researcher who writes code as part of their work through to professional software developers who, uh, who sit within a research group. My, my group very much sits at, at the latter end of that. Most of our team has has no uh, research experience, has no um, epidemiological experience. I, I have a research background, but but most of the team doesn't. And we recruit from industry, trying to find people who are who've got the, the right personality type to work with with researchers as experts in a collaboration. Right, but I think there's I think there's a there's a real diversity of, of possibilities within this. It, our, our team looks the way it does partly because the researchers we work with would be considered research software engineers in many departments. They all write code as part of their work. Um, so other teams are better suited to support different groups of research. So Mark Woodbridge also runs a research software engineering group within Imperial, and they support the entire rest of the university where the departments are less computationally focused, perhaps. It doesn't, it 
they can't carry a, a group of um, research software engineers. And so they, they work with a, with a far wider range of, of researchers and provide quite a different type of professional research. And then there are, there are further others who are, who have active research careers who still write papers and who still produce great software. The field of research software engineering is still really finding its, finding its feet. But I think what we'll find is that broad term really captures quite a number of ways of working effectively. Well, thanks, Richard, for all your answers. I think we're now coming to the end of the podcast. And uh, we would like to end the podcast with two questions that we ask uh, every participant. Are you up for it? Absolutely. Okay, let's imagine a point far, far, far ahead into the future. If you were to look back on your professional life, what would a successful career as a research software engineer look like to you? If I, if I could find a way of mapping the way researchers like to think in a way of just the easiest thing possible is to be reproducible. That that will be something I'll be very happy with, and that's that's sort of a, been a common thread through all my work is trying to trying to work out how to improve reproducibility without forcing researchers to abandon the creativity that makes what they do. And we haven't found it yet, but we've got lots of lots of hints of, of ways that we go. So hopefully by the end of my career, I think I've got at least another sort of 25 years to go. Um, I will, uh, will, have, will, have, will have found something that helps bridge that. The final question, and uh, we talked about research software engineering and your work so much. I mean, but outside of it, what do you like to do when you're not programming, helping research, leading teams, and possibly even writing research papers? Definitely not writing research papers. No, um, when I'm not when I'm not working, <laughs> I'm, I'm, a, I'm a very keen rock climber. And actually, while working in London, I live outside of it primarily so that I can get away into, into, into the mountains and whale or to the to sea cliffs whenever I can. So the, the last couple of months of lockdown with this glorious weather have been absolute torture. Sat here uh, doing nothing but writing code, thinking about thinking about the mountains. Thank you so much, Richard. That was such a pleasure talking to you today. And uh, I think we've reached the end of the interview. Uh, thanks for coming. Thank you very much. Thank you so much for listening. We hope you enjoyed the show and we would like to see you again in future. If you like this episode, It'll be great if you could leave a review wherever you download your podcasts from. And with that, goodbye.